In the words of Hebrews chapter 9, the Lord Jesus is coming back for those who eagerly wait for Him. What happens to Christians the nanosecond after they die? Where do they go? When they get there, what do they do? Is heaven an eternal church service? Will believers wear choir robes and sing for all eternity? Will you be bored? What will we look like? Will we have homes? If so, what will our homes look like? Will we recognize one another? Will we have friends and family? Will we travel? If we travel, how will we move about? Today's sermon title is from Hebrews chapter 13, Go to Jesus Seeking His Lasting City. Hebrews 13, we'll read verses 8 through 14, but as you're finding that place, let me remind you that the word gospel in the New Testament literally means good news. That's what the gospel literally means good news, an announcement that is good. And the reason that the gospel is good news is because there is very, very, very bad news. The bad news, as we have been singing and reading from God's Word, I am nothing else but sin. The original version of It Is Well With My Soul tells us that, uh, alas and did my Savior bleed actually, is that we are worms. We are vile. Bad news is, not only are we nothing else but sin in the previous hymn, or alas and did my Savior bleed, worms and vile, but that we're deserving of God's judgment. And the reason that the Gospel is good news is because the holy God that has been offended by our sin and who cannot sweep under the rug our crimes against Him put Christ forward to become a cadaver for the cleansing of your crimes. The good news of the Gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ took the punishment that you and I deserve for our crimes against God. But the good news in its best, most succulent portion is not what we are saved from. It is, as we love to say around here, what we are saved for. But let's face it, we don't think about that world often enough. And we don't press our little pea brain down into the ocean of God's truth enough to swim around in the delights of the things He describes to us about the day that is on the horizon. We like to say around here that the best part of the good news is not what we're saved from, but rather what we're saved for. And don't get me wrong, what we're saved from, as I've tried to describe in brief, is wonderful news. The flood is coming again. Noah and all the righteous are still building an ark. And the world is still laughing at us, telling us it has never rained and it never will rain and we're stupid. But the rain is coming and the flood is on its way and the droplets will soon fall and they will soon rage into a torrent of wrath when the world will again be flooded and the righteous will again be saved. And what we are saved from, oh, praise God for the glorious news of what we are saved from. But the Gospel is especially about what we are saved for. 
it is extraordinarily better news than what we are saved from. We could say it this way. Any desire that we may have to escape from hell is a very good desire. If you don't want to go to that awful place, then that is a good desire for you to possess. But that is no indication that you have been born again. What pagan would not, for selfish reasons, want to escape eternal torment? What is then the great evidence that we have been adopted by God, made co-heirs with His Son, but a desire for God Himself in His eternal presence? That's what today's sermon text is about, and I hope your appetite is wet to hear it because it is inexhaustibly wonderful. Hebrews 13, I'll pick up the reading in verse 8 and carry through verse 14. Grace Church, let's stand together as we hear the Word of the living God. Hebrews 13, verse 8, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Listen to the Word of the Lord. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Verse 12, Therefore Jesus also that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to Him, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Remain standing as we pray for God's help. I'll just give you a moment silently to pray that the Spirit would enlighten your mind and your heart. Oh Lord, we sincerely ask in Jesus' name that You would answer our cry. We ask for Your glory. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's three parts of this passage that we want to focus on today. We dealt with it last Sunday, and today is part two in the very same passage. So there are three other specific focuses that we want to draw out from these inexhaustible verses, and those focal points will come especially from verses 12, 13, and 14. They're related to the Savior Himself and His sufferings. They're related to the center of the Christian life, and then the city that is to come. First, the suffering Savior. You see Him, don't you, in verse 12. We're told three things in verse 12 about Him and about His sufferings. The suffering Savior. Do you see three things in verse 12 about Him? Well, we see at least His name. Don't overlook J-E-S-U-S. Jesus. We see first, who suffered. That's His human name, you remember. He has not from eternity been called Jesus. We've touched on this so many times through the book of Hebrews when that name has again emerged explicitly on the text. But that's His human name. When the second person of the Trinity, the very One who created the world and the ends of the universe, 
stepped out of the portals of eternity past into this little experiment of God called time and took on human flesh, it was then that the angelic pronouncement was inscribed on His birth certificate. You shall call His name Jesus. This is who suffered. Don't forget that it was for love's sake. Here is love vast as the ocean. That's why we sang the hymn. Loving kindness as a flood when the Prince of Life our ransom shed for us His precious blood. He didn't have any blood in eternity past. He took on flesh and blood, which is the main point actually of the book of Hebrews. That that same Jesus took on flesh and blood, became human truly. Man like you and I. The retaining full deity, God of God, He took on humanity in order to become our high priest. That's the point of verse 12. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which we labored on for I think six or eight sermons. I can't remember, but you uh, patient people endured it all. And we look there in those two verses at the main point of the book of Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Who endured the cross? Who was captivated by the joy set before Him? Who's the one that despised all the shame when the people wagged their heads and hurled insults and cast lots for His clothes as He was stripped naked and lacerated for our salvation? Who is He? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Chapter 1 tells us that that's the same person who is the radiance of the glory of God, exactly representing the nature of God. The Creator of the aeons. Through Him, God created. My New American Standard says worlds. Plural. We don't know how to translate it. We don't know how to figure it out. All times, all spaces, all places, everything that exists outside of God. You know that there was no space, right? Before God created everything. So we don't know how to translate it. Our little finite mind can't conceive it. It's that One who is seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Hebrews 1. Who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of His nature through whom the Father made the aeons. That's the One who made purification for our sins. If you don't know who suffered, then you'll never benefit from why He suffered. It would do you or I no good at all if I hung on a cross for our sins. Hebrews 2.9 tells us exactly why He took on human form. Jesus. In fact, Hebrews 2 verse 9 is the first time the name Jesus ever appears in the book of Hebrews. And I find that quite surprising because the whole book is about looking unto Jesus. But His name doesn't even come up to chapter 2. And He has built and set the stage so much that if you're reading it with the power of the Holy Spirit, you're you're about to explode. You so badly want Him to say Jesus. But He waits until that point so that He can say it this way. Hebrews 2.9 
but we do, present tense, see Him. Who for a little while, Psalm chapter 8, was made lower than the angels and crowned with suffering and honor. I skipped a word. We do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely, Jesus. Because of His suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. That's the point of the book. He's the one who suffered for us. And you see Him in the Gospel. So that's we're looking at the suffering Savior. We've seen the one who suffered. Now in verse 12, we're also told why He suffered. It says very plainly, to sanctify His people through His own blood. If you haven't been paying attention, Hebrews is a very bloody book. It's the second most bloody book in the Bible. Only surpassed by Leviticus. And Hebrews is a New Testament commentary on the Old Testament book of Leviticus. But Leviticus, as you remember, the sacrificial Levitical system, the details of the animals whose blood would be shed as a foreshadowing of the great sacrifice of Christ. The word blood occurs 20 times in the book of Hebrews. I'm not going to read all those to you. But it's interesting because every time the word blood occurs 20 times in the book of Hebrews, it is self-evident that the blood is not the point. Which is exactly the way it occurs here in verse 12. The blood is not the point. The purpose of the blood is the point. Verse 12 says that He might sanctify the people through His own blood. Hebrews 2.14 says that it was His blood shed on Calvary's cross through which He rendered Satan powerless. That death might no longer be our master our slave master. Hebrews 9 tells us that He did not go into an earthly copy of the true heavenly temple. But Hebrews 9.11 says He went into heaven itself and He did not offer the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer and the sprinkling of blood to cleanse our conscience. But, Hebrews 9 says, He offered His own blood. And, I love this phrase, so that He might obtain eternal redemption all redemption is in the arms of jesus he bought it he paid for it with his blood hebrews 9 11 and 12 without the shedding of blood 9 22 there's no forgiveness of sin 10 19 we have confidence i don't know if you prayed during the prayer meeting moment a moment ago not mean vocally prayed i don't know if you were engaged in it we had eight minutes i don't know ten minutes of an opportunity we'll never get back again. We'll plan for it next Sunday, but it won't be the same opportunity. I don't know if you exploited that privilege. But Hebrews 10 says, we have confidence to enter the holy place through the blood. Through the blood. Through the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10.29, do not regard as unclean the blood of the covenant and trample underfoot the Son of God unless you want to be dealt with by that God. And Hebrews ends in chapter 13, verse 20, talking about the blood of the eternal covenant. Verse 12 says that the blood of Jesus was for something that is, as I've mentioned, to sanctify the people. These are precious gospel realities. 
This is the heart of it all. This is why we're looking at the suffering Savior. This is why we've focused on His name, Jesus. This is now why we're looking into that brimless and bottomless fountain of the love of God where on Calvary's mount, oceans poured forth of redeeming love. The word sanctify in this verse does not mean what we often use it to mean in our systematic theology, right? So good Bible students have all these big categories and they're good categories. Justification, sanctification, glorification, those all fit under the umbrella of salvation. Justification is when the penalty of your sin is removed. You're forgiven. Sanctification is when the power of sin is broken and you're more conformed to the image of Christ. Glorification is when the presence of sin is gone and you're in the presence of God forever. That's not the way he's using sanctify. In this verse, he's not talking about an ongoing process of being made more like Christ. In this verse, the word carries the meaning of to be freed from the guilt of sin, to have your soul purified, to be cleansed from your impurities, to be consecrated unto God. And the verse says that's why He died for us. To make you clean in God's sight. I know two things about every one of you, even if I hadn't talked to you in a long time or ever before. I know two things deeply going on deeply in your soul. And they're in my soul. And they're in everybody else's soul you'll ever meet. Number one, you want to be close to God. That's a fact. You were made for Him. And number two, you want to be clean in His presence. That's the way He made you. And this verse tells you how. And there's no other way. To be sanctified through the blood of Jesus. The Holy One of Israel is the one who died on Calvary's cross. Who was He? Jesus. Why did He suffer? To sanctify us through His own blood. And uh, the third aspect we see of the suffering Savior is in verse 12, where He suffered. So who, why, and where. Those are all in verse 12. Verse 12 tells us that He suffered outside the gate. And we saw in last week's sermon, which I'm not going to repeat all that material, but... Last week, we saw that there's a comparison and a contrast going on here. Verses 9, 10, and 11. The old legal system. The old sacrificial system. Inside the temple, in Jerusalem, hundreds and thousands of animal sacrifices offered there. Then the carcasses of those animals carried outside the city where they would be burned. We saw that the writer is setting up really a law and gospel contrast. So where Jesus suffered is very significant, and not to repeat everything from the last sermon, but to try to give it to you in an impregnated phrase. Which carcasses were burned out there? Sin sacrifice carcasses. What sacrifices were burned out there? Sin sacrifice. This isn't 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. This isn't Romans chapter 14. Sacrifices. This isn't food sacrificed to idols and you've got to figure out in your conscience if it's okay to eat that carcass or not. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the particular sin sacrifice. The Old Testament scapegoat. You put hands on this as a symbol that you're transferring the iniquity of the people onto this beast and you slay the other animal... As you send the scapegoat way over there, you slay the other one as evidence that God hates our sin and sacrifice must be made to cover our iniquity. You don't eat that one. You take that carcass and you throw it as far away as you can. Where, 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 where did Jesus suffer? The holy temple 
The place where the presence of God dwells wasn't right here. When Jesus climbed on Calvary, He took the true temple, the greater temple, the place where the presence of God dwelt and was manifested. The Shekinah glory of God, the real Holy of Holies, the real priest climbed Himself up on the real altar and He died where carcasses were scattered all over the place. When He took our sin, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's where He suffered. Outside the city. And I said a moment ago, Christ's cadaver hung where the carcasses of sin sacrifices were hurled so that you could be cleansed for your crimes against your Creator. Right then, right there, 2,000 years ago, your testimony, if you are in Jesus, was you were sanctified. He finished the work for your purification and your sanctification before God. This is the Gospel. That the Son of God died the death that you deserved in order to sanctify you before God. He was buried that very day, lifeless, and three days later, emerged from the grave, alive forevermore, with salvation in His hand. He said that He came up from the grave holding the keys of death and Hades. That's the suffering Savior. That's verse 12. Verse 13 is about the center of the Christian life. The center. What are you aiming at? Verse 13 says, So, or therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. So let us go to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. Here's the center of the Christian life. It is again the application of of the point of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews point, Jesus is our high priest who sanctifies us through His own blood. He truly makes us clean before God and He truly allows us to live close to God. So then, what is the center of our life? What's the application? Go to Him. The evidence that we have been saved by Him is that we now possess an insatiable appetite for Him. What a verse. You could memorize this one right now. So let us go out to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. So let us go to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. One more time, New American Standard. So, that's an important word, let us go to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. Hebrews 13.13 In this little verse, there's a person, there's a location, And there's an expectation. The person we've looked at in verse 12. Him. Let us go out to Him. If you and I have not met God in Christ, we have not met God. Charles Spurgeon said, there are many ways to Jesus, but He is the one way to God, and that is John 14.6. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. But this verse is telling us He is the life. Let us go to Him. Let us go to Him. He's the center of the Christian life. He saves us, as we like to say, all by Himself, but He also saves us all for Himself. That's why we had Carmen read a moment ago Philippians chapter 1. To live is not about Christ. Christ. (laughs) He's our life. 
All life is bound up in Him. That's the person, but the verse also tells us something about a location. Let us go to Him where? Outside the camp. If you've not been to Calvary for the forgiveness of your sins, then the remainder of this passage has nothing to offer you. The remainder of the text entices us to live at the place where Jesus won our redemption. And to never turn back from that glorious hill of Golgotha. I loved Rick's prayer during our prayer time. Let us pitch our tent, or however he said it, set up our camp out there where Jesus died. Again, this is law and gospel comparison and contrast. We're told in one verse, Jesus died outside the gate. And we're told in this verse, go out there. The author is linking his instruction, go outside the camp, to Jesus, to the example he's been using in the preceding verses. Verses 9-11, to Old Testament sacrificial system, all of that, he explained, happened in the temple. He calls it the tabernacle, interestingly. John also calls Jesus the tabernacle. In John chapter 1. But we're told here in verse 13, go to Jesus outside the camp. That shorthand, outside the camp, which is a reason I would love for you to memorize this verse, outside the camp, three words, is shorthand for the fullness of Gospel blessing. One simple phrase, outside the camp, He's telling all Christians in all time, in all places, and the next verse will tell us for all eternity, He's telling us do not return to the law as the ground for honoring God. we got to get this right. For those of you who don't know, there are books and books and books, sermons and sermons and sermons, arguments and arguments and arguments about the relationship between the law and the Gospel. For 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure out what's the New Testament work of Christ relationship to the Old Testament covenantal system. This is a very big deal. And in one phrase, namely, outside the camp, the writer of Hebrews is telling us how to live in light of the tension of these two things. He doesn't throw one away, but he tells us explicitly where the honor of God is to be found. Let me say it in other terms. Hebrews 13.13 is the same thing as declaring this. If Jesus' sacrifice will not save you, then you will not be saved. Let me say it again. If Jesus won't save you, then you need to be able to say with a gospel confidence, then I'll never be saved. Let's say it again this way. If you're trusting in anything other than the person and the work of Jesus to present you before God as His own forever, then you're not trusting in Jesus alone to present you before God as His own forever. We were given, actually my mom was given, and and we benefit from the gift she was given, a ninja blender. Anybody ever seen one of these things? We had a blender before, but by comparison, what we had was not a blender. Right? Now we have this thing that's got like a three horsepower motor in it. Basically, you could put the same motor on a go-kart and it would take an adult around the neighborhood. This thing is bad to the bone. You throw anything in there. We had salsa this week. 
previously when we made salsa, we had the little hand push blender. You know, you put in a little of this, you chop it up, put in a little of that, you chop it up. The ninja, nope, throw the whole onion in there, throw whatever else you want in there, turn it on, boom, it's liquefied basically in a second. The author's saying, don't you dare mix anything else with him. Don't you dare bring any of Jerusalem out there with you. Don't you dare drag any of your works out there. Don't even bring the bag. Leave all that the same way the Old Testament saints left all that. They weren't trusting in their works to save them. In fact, he's leaning into the Abrahamic example when he's talking about all these tabernacle, temple, law, blessing, promise things. It's just saturated. We'll get there in just a second. With the same things that Abraham was hoping in. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. You have to trust Jesus alone. Here's a loaded statement. For the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of all of God's promises for you, including eternal life. We say around here, any contribution that you would try to bring to God to help Him save you only worsens your damnable predicament. Romans 5.9 Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. The question is ever, is Jesus and what He did enough for you? The Christian never moves beyond the Gospel. We're all continually tempted to return to Jerusalem and hope that our performance will somehow merit some extra favor with God. Two points with Jesus because of something we did for Him. It doesn't work that way. He is not served by human hands. Acts 17, as though He needed anything. It doesn't say He's not served by human hands. But we serve out of the overflow of His grace. We serve from being made right with God, not for being made right with God. Like the Apostle Paul said years after his conversion, which is the reason we had Carmen read this passage, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, may I be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own. That's what outside the camp means. Only what Jesus did, no other hope ever, so I'm going to say it again, if Jesus Christ will not save Jordan Thomas, Jordan Thomas will not be saved. That's what we mean. No hope at all in anything or anyone else. Period. Outside the camp. Go to Jesus outside the camp. Well, that's uh, two of the three things we find in verse 13. The person. The location. But what else do we see? Verse 13, the expectation. Bearing His reproach. The author doesn't want us to be mistaken about what godliness will cost in this lifetime. So he draws a map. He didn't have a smartphone like you got in your pocket. But he had the map of the city in his mind. And it was probably more detailed than the one in your pocket. He draws a map between Jerusalem and Golgotha. He tells us to walk on that dusty path with our Lord Jesus. Go. It's it's present tense. Continue going to Him. 
Continue walking away from Jerusalem. Continue walking toward Golgotha. Keep going to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. And as He's got that map in His mind that He's drawing for us at the end of verse 13, He tells us there will be reproach on that path. You do remember, don't you, what happened to Jesus the last time He walked that path. Luke 23, the scorn. He had a railroad cross tie on his shoulders in Matthew 27 when he walked that path and he got the shame. There were people spitting at him and pulling the beard out of his face in Matthew in Mark 15, the ignominy. They did their best when he walked that path in John 19 to humiliate him. And the author of Hebrews is telling you, walk that path. Bear His reproach. Not a martyr complex. Don't try to go get more of that thinking that that's going to help God like you more. No, Jesus took all that. But let it be duly noted that if you go to Jesus outside the camp, don't be duped into thinking that The Bible has any reference to a sentimental time of solitude that you share with the Savior in the silence of serenity. We're not talking about meadows and butterflies and you know quiet music playing in the background. That's not the Christian life. Christian life is warfare. It's reproach. It's similar to the reference where Paul cited, uh, pardon me, Paul called Christ's followers those who were quote being counted as sheep to be slaughtered, being put to death all day long, Romans 8. But he says, praise God, in that very same passage, that the ominous declaration, sheep to be slaughtered, that's who we are. That's the, that's the salary package. Devoted discipleship to Jesus means that, but it also comes, praise God, with this. Yet in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. As our Lord Himself taught us, walking with Him will be the fast track to a lot of things, but it will never be the fast track to winning friends and influencing people. The world, instead of giving us its rewards, will give us its reproach. Instead of giving us a trophy just because you competed or signed up for the league like everybody gets today, that's not the way the world's going to treat you for walking with Jesus. Most of the world will despise you. Most of the world will malign you. Most of the world will dismiss you. Most of the world will mischaracterize you and caricature you. And will say things about you that you yourself do not embrace. And they will mistreat you. Because of Him. And oh, what a privilege! Oh, what an honor! I'm not talking about martyr complex. I'm not talking about empty sentimentality. I'm talking about glory unspeakable. Pronouncing the categories of my Messiah, I now gladly say to you, rejoice and be glad. When men persecute you and revile you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely on account of Him. For so they treated the prophets who were before you. Great is your reward in heaven. 
Which incidentally, is the next verse. Matthew 10.25, If they call the head of the house Beelzebul, said the Lord Jesus, how much more will they malign the members of His household? What is this strange religion in our day that has swept over our land and has been exported to the far reaches of the earth? What is the religious nonsense that promises that a relationship with God comes complete with a guarantee for an easy life on this side of eternity? What is that? Where, where did we find that? In light of the onslaught of that garbage, I commend to you Acts chapter 5 as a fountain under which you ought to linger. Matthew, uh, pardon me, Acts 5, verse 40. After calling the apostles in, in this case, Peter and John, the council flogged them. Probably means 39 lashes from well-trained guards. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. So, I love that word. (laughs) What a connection. What's going to come next? So, therefore, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And every day, and in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They went on their way rejoicing. As we draw near to our Savior, we ought to expect that the world is going to give us some of the same treatment that it gave to Him. Samuel Rutherford said, Our dear Lord had a cross and then a crown. Why would we who follow Him expect to have two crowns? Amy Carmichael said, Hast thou no scar? Thou must not have followed Him far. I can almost feel Moses' side cramp when he's belly laughing his way out of Egypt. He's laughing so hard with such a big grin on his face and hardly anybody in all the company of Israel understood it. And I know that from Hebrews chapter 3. I think very precious few of them were actually regenerate. But Moses has this side cramp. And he's laughing his way all the way out of Egypt. And Hebrews 11 tells us why. He left the privileged city of Egypt and the privileged position as the king's right-hand man because, quote, he considered the reproach of Christ. Same word. The reproach of Christ. Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Hebrews 11.26 Friends, Jesus is the epicenter of true Christianity. His cross alone is enough, meritorious, for your salvation. But the reason the cross has any power is because He hung on it. (laughs) He's the Savior. And those who know His saving power are resigned with the Apostle Paul while we read it to count everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. So remember this. Romans 8.17 If we suffer with Him, you want a promise? If we suffer with Him, we shall also be glorified with Him. And I consider Romans 8.18 that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Two points. Verse 12, the suffering Savior. Verse 13, the center of the Christian life. And now I just want to flirt with your imagination about the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
Verse 14 tells us about the city that is to come. The city that is to come. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. What the Christian longs for most is not here. It is hereafter. Hebrews 12.22 calls our future home, quote, the city of the living God. Hebrews picks up that same theme a bunch of times. I'm not going to give it all to you, but Hebrews 11 says, Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11.13-16, I'll summarize it, says, These desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. That's what verse 14 is talking about. Now, all that was introduction. What we are saved from doesn't even come close to what we are saved for. Are you seeking after what verse 14 calls this heavenly city, this lasting city, the city which is to come? Charles Simeon said, if this be practical Christianity, then how little have we lived like true Christians? Meaning, if the application of the Gospel in verse 12 is seek the city which is to come, verse 14, then how little, Charles Simeon, have we lived like real Christians? The author's drawing a comparison, as I mentioned earlier, between Abraham and the patriarchs who left their original home, their original cities, they went out from those, and they sojourned in this world in pursuit of the promises of God that last forever. That's what we're being called to in verse 14. This world is not our home. We are to stalk down the promises of the magnificent things that our God has prepared for us. We are to be captured and captivated by the King of the coming city. And we're to be constrained to live in light of His calling on our life. It puts in perspective all of our sufferings and all of our triumphs. This life is a vapor. Peter tells us that we're to completely fix our hope on the grace that will come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1. That's why today's corporate prayer theme was God. I don't know if this is just words to you. I know nobody reads this thing. I'm not throwing stones at you about that. But the theme, God, will You give us a longing for the return of Christ? That's verse 14. That's what it means to be one of those who are seeking the city which is to come. I hope and pray that God's going to magnetize you to Himself. And I'm going to do it in a very few minutes. But I'm praying that as I flirt with your sanctified imagination on the basis of the words of Scripture, God will give us an idea of what's coming. My kids had a chalkboard countdown on our uh, kitchen chalkboard for our previous vacation to the Grand Canyon a couple weeks ago. It said 39 days, and 38, and down to 17, and down to 4, and three and two until there was a big zero because we had been showing them pictures we had been telling them stories and we had been trying to whet their appetite so they get the chalk in their hand and they go to the board every day and they look forward to it and they long for it and they want to see it and it was better than anything we showed them in a picture in any description we could have ever given them 
listen, I'm going to try to touch the hem of the garment of the glory of our God, but it's better. It's better than anything I'm about to say to you. And I want you to get a chalkboard in the inside of your heart. And I want you to start counting down days. If He gives me 82 years, 45 days, 7 hours, 4 minutes, and 3 seconds, then I get to see this glory. If He gives me 17 years, 4 days, 2 hours, and 1 second, then I get to see this glory. I want to flirt with your imagination. Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses left Egypt. He went through the Red Sea. He led the Exodus, quote, because he was looking to the reward. This will empower us to live for Jesus today. So the introductory question to today's sermon was, what happens to Christians after they die? Where do they go? When they get there, what will they do? Is heaven an eternal church service? Will we be bored? Will believers wear choir robes and sing for all eternity? What will we look like? Will we have homes? What will they look like? Will we recognize one another? Don't you want to know? Well, I recommend to you all, big kids and little kids alike, Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven is for Kids. And this book has... uh, I, I sat down to get some sermon help and I messed up and read the whole thing this week. I couldn't put it down. And it wet my appetite. And I'm going to commend it highly. Randy Alcorn, Heaven is for Kids. Alcorn helps us see what we're saved for. He says, let's be honest. Are you really looking forward to heaven? Maybe in 70 or 80 years, right? So kids, think about this. After you've done all the stuff in this world that you really, really want to do, then maybe you'll be ready for heaven. Think about some of the things you look forward to. Christmas or your favorite holiday, your birthday, going to your favorite place, going to SeaWorld or Six Flags or the Grand Canyon. Think about how much you look forward to the last day of school, which is the new countdown in a lot of houses around here. Seeing a movie that you've heard about that's really good and how much you anticipate going with your friends or family. Getting the next book in the favorite series that you've been reading and just can't wait for the day that it comes out. Why do you look forward to those things? You look forward to those things because you already know something about them and you use your God-given imagination about how wonderful they'll be. But looking forward to heaven is way better than that. Way better than Christmas. Way better than your birthday. Way better than anything else. Yet, we find it hard to believe because we have a hard time imagining. We have a hard time understanding what we're seeking after. So Gary Larson, you, you bigger kids, meaning adults, is the author of the Far Side comic. And uh, in his, one of his comics about heaven, he had a man sitting on a cloud with a halo, doing nothing with nobody else around him. And the caption said, I should have brought a magazine. Is that what heaven's going to be like? You're going to have angel wings on your back and halos over your head and sitting on clouds? Oh, for the Bible's description to energize us and magnetize us toward that soon coming day. Revelation 21, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. 2 Peter 3, Peter says unashamedly that God will destroy this earth. But when God makes the new earth, will He just start from scratch? Nope. It'll be like the flood when the earth was then destroyed, but God took the same earth and He restored it. And in the new earth, God is going to take the material that's already here and He's going to regenerate it and cause it to be reborn. And the Garden of Eden will cover the whole planet. 
Romans chapter 8 says the whole creation, not only the earth, but all of creation is eagerly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God because the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. If you were to take your hand and imagine that the width of it is the, life, the span of your lifetime, and you were to go from your perspective a mile to the left, that would represent all of human history. And then here's your little hand. To do it this way, one mile that way, is the Mississippi River. So from the river to my hand is all of human history. This little space is my lifetime. And then everything to the right of my hand is eternity. Why would you give your life to this? Why would you invest everything you've got here when all that is in front of you? But what is all that? Revelation 21. John says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and a high mountain and He showed me the holy city. He showed me the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and a high wall with twelve gates and the gates had twelve angels and the names were written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out in a square. Its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles was its length and its width and its height are equal. Wait, what? Memphis to Los Angeles. Mexico to Canada. Square. Cubed. Is just the city of Jerusalem. That's not all of it. You're not going to be packed on top of each other. You're going to have room to roam and to explore. And Alcorn and many others have speculated from text in Scripture with sanctified imagination that maybe our Creator will exercise His endless creativity continuing to make new worlds and planets, not people, so that we can roam and reign with Him. We can continue to work in His world, His way as we were created to. Work existed, you know, before the fall and work will continue in the age to come. If you don't want to work now, heaven is not going to be a place for you because we'll continue to cultivate the world and to reign as God called us to. It's a huge part of the reason that we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday here. And we'll do here in just a few minutes because 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we're supposed to look back to what Jesus did for us on the cross, but every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're also to look forward to His return. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, my prayer is, oh God, just loosen our grip a little bit more. Loosen our grip a little bit more. Loosen our grip a little bit more on this transient life and this little fleeting world and cause us to grab onto things that matter for all of eternity. When we take the supper today, just pray down into your soul that we'll really long for things to come. You know what Jesus told us to pray? Pray this way. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. Just as it is in heaven. Why would He tell us to pray that way if it isn't going to happen? And in the same sermon, He said, the meek will inherit 
the earth. The Lamb, the Lord Jesus, will be the light of the whole place. Everyone in it will be your friend because they are your family. You will not only not possess the capacity to sin, you will also not possess the capacity to be tempted to sin. Everything you ever think or do, every motivation and every action will be gloriously filled and eternally amplified exponentially with greater desire and ability to glorify the God who bought you with His own blood. This place is going to be wonderful. No crime, no tears, no pain, no sorrow, no ability to flee from the presence of our Maker. Dear friends, when it's all boiled down to the irreducible minimum, Hebrews 12, 12-14 tells us what really matters. What are you living for? What are you seeking after? And who are you going to let keep you from pursuing that city which is to come? Let's pray together. Father, it makes sense that the Apostle Peter, looking into the portal of eternity with You, when we see our Savior face to face, would say, even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with joy inexpressible. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Oh God, we ask that You would make us a Hebrews 9 people. Come what may. Cause us to eagerly await the return of our Savior. And Lord, we ask that You would expand our sanctified imagination on the basis of the text of Your Word. To believe that a day is coming when the lion will lay down with the lamb, when the child will put his hand over the hole of the adder and not be bitten. A day is coming when every weapon of war will be beaten into a plowshare. And we will cultivate the earth like we were intended to do. Lord, we believe that the beauty of the Grand Canyon and the far-reaching coastlines of the most beautiful oceans and seas only pale in comparison to what it's going to look like in a glorified age with glorified bodies, with glorified companions, and a glorious Savior. Lord, whatever Jesus meant when He said, I pray that You would restore to me the glory that I had with You before the world was. Oh God, we ask that You would also by His accomplishment at Calvary and for Your glory, we ask that You would also give to us the glory that You share in the fellowship of Your triune person even before the world was created but You saved us so we could enjoy with You for all eternity. Lord, we look to that day. And in the words of Revelation with our brother the Apostle John, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus.
Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask in His name.